Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. More stories you are not going to believe. And advice that you didn't know that you needed. Five stars. Five and a half stars. We're creating a legacy one call at a time. Here comes my daddy. Your problem is, is that you like me. My dad is my hero. He'll always be there to take your call, and you'll never be in too much trouble if your dad is around. Oh, boy. Hey, hey, hey. I think I'm a pretty cool dude. Better call daddy. The safe space for controversy. This is your host, Rena Friedman-Watts. No, this is your host, Celia Watts. More inspirational stories, more daddy drama, and more laughs. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Today's guest says no more spaghetti thinking. That reminds me of what my dad says. He says no more spaghetti and meatballs for him. He'll take a steak. Today, it's about positive thinking. Sarah Ramsey, welcome. Hello, how are you? I'm awesome. How are you? I am good. I'm good. I forgot I promised you a song, so I'm making it up right now. <laughs> oh, yeah, baby. I did write that down. I want some stomp and holler. I know. I know. It won't take long. <laughs> I'm looking up words that rhyme with daddy right now. <laughs> I love it. Oh my God. I've never even heard of Stomp and Holler, to be perfectly honest. Really? I have not. I need to Google that. Okay. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to, I want you like to have good Stomp and Holler though, Too because funny. there's some really like terrible Stomp and Holler. Okay. You'll know We've this. all been told what success looks like, but what does it look like for you? Daphne and Maddie, everybody. Okay. You'll know this. My bed. Nashville. So that's a, they're one of my favorite. They're like children. I mean, if you watch the video, it's like children. I mean, it's amazing. They're so talented. That honestly lights my soul on fire. When I hear it, powerful voices like that, yeah. um, it can bring me to tears. Because a lot of it with this stomp and holler stuff, it's almost that like folk, like almost that jewel type thing. And so you have to be a very good singer, right? Because I mean, I even listened to Lady Gaga, and she's obviously very, very good, but I listened to her do that. Shallow, 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 shallow. And it was like at the Grammys. So she was like off key at the Grammys a little bit. And I was just like, oh, I'm on the deep end, watching a falling, or whatever that is. It was like, I never be. And it was like, oh, Lady Gaga, get, right, get all the way up there. You know, and it's a very hard thing. You know, it's anyway, but. Like the stomp and holler is just like made to be so natural and folky and you don't have a lot of the help that you right. have. And Other a lot of musicians are digitally helped. Yes. Wow. Well, tell me a little bit and the audience a little bit about your musical background. Okay. So I was a piano major. I've been playing piano since I was six years old. I love it, right? I love music. I love the expression of it and, and the soul of it. I played piano 
in bars and churches and coffee houses and, and everywhere else. And just that sense of music connects us all. Yes, it really does. Wow. And did you ever want to quit piano lessons? I mean, everybody wants to. Yes. So, so that first piano lesson is when I was four years old and I went and learned Twinkle Twinkle Little Star on my own, right? And so for all the parents listening who are thinking, maybe I'll make my kids take piano as much as I love it. If they're not going to the piano on their own and tinkling around, it's a real uphill battle. I would not suggest it. <laughs> it could be really difficult. But I was always already tinkering around on the piano and that kind of thing. But about second grade, I think it got hard. And my mom said, well, if you want to quit, you have to call the piano teacher and tell her. And I was like, I'm not going to call my piano teacher. I, I like adore her. I'm not going to call her until I'm going to quit. And that is legitimately the only reason I did not quit. Well, so you must have had an awesome teacher. Yeah. Yeah. She was, she was very kind to me. And she made me waffles when I was in high school. I loved waffles, which is a funny thing, including into my next book, but she made me uh, waffles. I would take piano lessons at 7 a.m. because I was so busy after school with other activities. I was practicing piano two hours a day. So at 7 a.m. I would take piano lessons and then I ended up babysitting for her. So I would spend the night at her house, have piano lessons at 7 a.m. and she would get up and make me waffles in the morning before my piano lessons. And then when I got married, she got me a waffle maker for my wedding gift. Isn't that cute? What a special relationship. So you really stayed with her for a while. She must have been a pretty good teacher. I did. I did. And I babysit her daughter and her daughter sang. And, uh, you know, it was just very, very close. Very close. Incredible. How many years did you take with her? Age six to 18 until I went to college. Unbelievable. So did she major in that as well? Did she play all over town? She didn't play as much as me. She did a lot of directing. So a mm. lot of directing musicals and that kind of thing. And she is a busy lady and likes to stay busy. It's funny how much of my personality is actually closer to hers in my family. You know, I just spent so much time with her. We had so much in common. So yeah, she's wonderful. It's amazing too. And I know my dad will actually think about this, but I had the same singing teacher for four years all through high school that helped me all through a youth performing arts school. So it's a very special relationship. I mean, I honestly felt like at times she was my shrink. Well, absolutely. And I was a choral director years ago in my early 20s. I mean, it just feels like so long ago, but I was a choral director and just, you know, those students and I was just happy, such amazing singers. I, I just was so, it was so fun. So I would basically make like Saturday Night Live shows. Like I would write a musical. So it almost felt like Saturday Night Live with all these jokes and that kind of stuff with the music in between, like, you know, so like creative. Santa Claus is coming to town and then, you know, then we'd have like a wood like stomp, no, just speaking of stomp and holler, but you know, that stomp like brooms and sticks and drums and all this kind of stuff. It's just so fun. And it's funny too, how different things translate as an entrepreneur, right? And it's like, I'm still super creative. You know, my second book's about to come out, but it looks so different. <laughs> it's definitely not musicals and all that kind of stuff anymore, but it's creativity. It's putting things out in the world. It's trying things and just seeing if they work out and finding interesting ways of saying things or speaking against things. It's just, it's cool. Yeah. I would love to know like kind of how you evolved as a performer. Great question. It is, I will say this now that I'm life coaching, I've been doing that for over half a decade and it's fascinating how much my 
musicality has improved where my confidence and mindset and as I've gone through and healed my own trauma and gone through and done my own inner work how amazing it is that like I, I can blossom as a musician right I'm, I'm so much faster at learning things and quicker at learning things I studied classical music in my undergrads Beethoven and Chopin and all that kind of stuff and then it was really funny when I started taking jazz piano after college and my fingers could just do cool things that you know, people who learned to play by ear and didn't do the scales and stuff with Chopin, like my fingers could just do things their fingers couldn't do. Wow. Right? But I always had the ear. If I had not had teachers who could not play by ear, I don't know that I would have ever learned how to read music, right? Because I was so naturally geared towards playing by ear anyway. Interesting. But literally all my teachers didn't play by ear, they read music. So they pushed read music, read music, read music. So I learned. So, so it's a really cool kind of coming all together when I started taking jazz and that kind of thing. And just like my fingers could do things and then my ears were starting to hear it. And during COVID kind of my guilty pleasure, I guess, or unguilty pleasure, I would just go live and I would like pick a song, like I will survive or landslide, you know, some of these, some of these songs. And I would just like play it one or two times, like with the chord charts. And then I would just be like, okay, let's see, what can I do? And I would just go live on Facebook or something and just like play it and sing it. And it was like, it was the closest I could come to playing live. Right. And still had that edge of like, okay, there's, especially during COVID, there were all kinds of people watching because we were all stuck at our houses. You know? There were even choirs doing it. Yeah. Like I saw choirs all on Zoom. I was like, that is so powerful. Did you see some yeah. of that? Good. And it's just so healing. I just think music is so universal. It's so connected and it's so unique, right? It's like, oh yeah, you know, stomp and holler or Gregorian chant. I mean, half the mornings in the morning, like I love to be peaceful. I'll listen to Gregorian chant or something, you know, and it's oh, just yeah. whatever heavy metal. It's just so unique and universal and beautiful. Did you get to like travel and sing or did you get to sing any places that like really stick out in your mind? Brazil. I went to Brazil in college with my college choir, got to go to Rio de Janeiro. So, you know, here in the U.S., Brazilian steakhouses are kind of a big deal and, you know, they're, they're fun and that kind of thing. It cost nothing to eat in Brazil all those years ago. I mean, 20 years ago or something and probably only like five because I'm very young, right? But 20 years ago. So... <laughs> 20 years ago, you know, it costs nothing to eat in these Brazilian steakhouses. So we were going through like these Brazilian steakhouses. And I, I mean, I think we brought like eight or nine dollars and would go these amazing meals and spray tans were really new then. So there were a couple of college girls who'd gotten like, I guess, cheap spray tans before this trip. And I, what that's what I remember about the trip is these girls looking so splotchy and orange. Ocean. That's the best. <laughs> it was the best. Yeah. Oh yeah. See, I saw girls doing that really in college. And I just remember too, like it totally wears off on your dress, you it, know? So was, like they were doing it for like formals, you know, and it would be all over their dress, like orange, you know? Yeah. I worked yes. at a tanning bed in college. I actually regret that now. Yeah, I know my daughter. I'm like, sunscreen, sunscreen, you can do it. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh my gosh, that's wild. Yeah, so when I went to the youth performing arts school, we got to go to Carnegie Hall twice. And it really wasn't even about like solo. It was about the sound of all of our voices coming together in that space. It was so resonant and so powerful. I remember just like staring at the beauty of the whole environment and just like wanting to stop time. It was so amazing. And I love when choral music can feel like that, where you can't even differentiate between the different voices. Like it just all comes together. I'm sure you know, as a choral director, it's just remarkable when voices can blend. Well, and I forgot, I took a choir to sing on the Today Show. I can't believe that's not what came to mind. I, I really love Brazil, right? You know, but it was, it's cool, you know? I know, it's, it's, it's cool. So music's taken me so many neat places. You know, it's just been really amazing. Okay, talk about the Today Show. That's major. Yeah, I was actually quoted in today recently. I took it, took it 20 years ago, took, took the choir. And, but recently I was talking about love bombing and I was one of the experts in the Today Show. Congratulations. Love, 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 love the quote that they pulled from me. And they said, you are the one constant in your life, which is like one of my favorite quotes and principles. And, you know, when you do those types of interviews and stuff, you never know what tidbit they're going to pull. And it could have been something that I was like, okay, a thousand people could have said that or you know, it's not even that big of a deal, but I was so glad that that's like the, the point that they highlighted is that you are the one constant in your life. Cause that's what I believe. Like from birth to death, I'm stuck with me. I better like me. I better respect me. If I don't like me or respect me, I better figure out something to do better or change within my own life. And so, so a long time ago with the Today Show, which I don't know that I remember that much about. And then, you know, this week the article came out that I was quoted in talking about, you know, love bombing and making sure you don't end up in a love bombing situation. And when someone is trying to throw us off our game or manipulate us or whatever, the more you have that inner self and that strong inner self and that inner core. And a lot of people talk about it as being self-worth, which is true, but it's also self-integrity, right? Like, okay, I'm not gonna ignore that red flag. Okay, I'm, I'm going to follow through on promises I made to myself. Okay, I'm not gonna put up with that behavior. I mean, those are really self-integrity questions not just self-worth questions. I'm just so thrilled, I, you know, that that's the quote that they went with. Uh, you know, you are the one constant in your life. And I think it's just such a good motto. That's amazing. I love that they picked something that you feel like really encapsulated your message. I mean, that's lucky. <laughs> I know, it could have been anything. <laughs> you know, you send them- You're like, good one, I would have picked that too. I know, yes, yeah. And, it, and really just that core messaging because a lot of the time, you know, my, my past work has been in toxic relationships and it can get really negative or it can get really like, you know, I talked about this, it's like, oh, I don't, I don't hate men. I don't hate women. I don't hate relationships. I don't think everybody's bad. I don't think all the good guys are taken. You know what I mean? Just all these yucky pieces of energy that can go around the toxic relationship conversation, even codependency, right? Like a conversation on codependency. And it's like, you know, a lot of the women that I see, I mainly work with women, though I've seen men too. I mean, it's like they believe the best in someone and then they get tricked, right? They put their whole heart out there and get tricked. Or, you know, when they study Ted Bundy, right? He picked these really nice, kind women. Hey, I'm on crutches. Will you hold my books for me? And then they would get killed. 
right? And there's a great book called, oh my gosh, The Fear. Ah, it's about fear. Can't remember. But it's, it's a whole book about, I'll come up with it in a second, a whole book about fear. I had pie and ice cream right before this. The sugar is coming up to my brain. <laughs> The gift of fear. Thank you. So the gift of fear. And it talks about how often people who are nice and kind and good, they get trained to like be nice. And so someone comes and kind of like gets infringes on their boundaries and they're like, well, I need to be nice. So I'll tell them yes. And those are the people who end up in dangerous situations or killed or kidnapped or whatever, rather than I don't know you, I'm uncomfortable with what you're saying, or my body's sending me signals that something's wrong. Thank you, but no, thank you. Stay and away. that was you. I mean, you grew up the nice girl in the I, public eye, having to be the people pleaser of, you know, you were a pastor's daughter. So, uh huh. Yeah, I say that the way I made decisions in the past was basically having a empty permission slip. And I would go up to you like, will you sign my permission slip? Will you sign my permission slip? Will you sign my permission slip? And that's why I've been studying toxic relationships. And now I'm writing a book about decision-making and problem solving. Because if you've been in controlling situations, the way you make a decision is how do I not make them mad, right? Or what choice do I make that's going to make the least amount of people mad? Or what choice am I going to make that other people will be happy with? Or what choice am I going to make that won't rock the boat, right? And if that's the way you make decisions and then you grow up and you mature and you set boundaries and you make changes, then how do you make decisions? And I see this like blank slate going across people's faces. They're like, well, I don't know how to make decisions other than that. So that's what this next book is about. Problem solved, simple habits for complex decisions. Yeah, that's necessary. I was also listening to an interview you did today and you said, have you ever given advice that you yourself didn't follow? And I mean, what's the percentage of people that do that? And uh -huh. what is the percentage of people that work on that? Since my past work has been in toxic relationships, you know, I'll say, people say things and I'll say, well, you know, Rena, say, say when you were in Tennessee recently, say you'd met up with me and my husband, right? And then you saw him scream at me. You saw him degrade me. You saw him talk ugly to me. I'm guessing it would change your perception of me and my work, right? And, you know, I'll say that to people. They're like, oh yeah, no, that would totally change my perception of you. And I was like, well, well why? As long as I'm giving good advice, it doesn't mean, it doesn't matter if I'm living it out. And you can see like this realization come on their face and whether it's like, hey, as a mom, I'm not allowed to rest, but I want to make sure my kids do. Right? I was That's just going to apply that to parenting because how many times do we tell them to get off their screen and we're I doing mean, it? Yes. And when you start really thinking about giving advice you're not willing to take as dishonest, that's when that self-integrity piece really lands and leans in. How do you put yourself in check? I think about leading by example all the time, right? And I'll say that. Or when I'm saying something and giving advice in coaching or on podcast or whatever, I my brain just automatically now thinks, okay, if there was a camera following you around, would people think you were really following through on that? And I am not perfect. There's been times I've had a nutrition coach and I just had my own personal pie and ice cream before this call. No regrets. <laughs> Don't tell Sarah. <laughs> but, but no regrets. It was wonderful, you know. But some, I mean, sometimes, of course, I have a bad day or make a mistake or I'm frustrated. My son last night, he 
he's in middle school and he thinks it's, he popped this bag in front of me, like thinking it was a joke. And he was just trying to be funny and connect with me. And I was like, mm, done. Dinner had happened. I was tired. I was just like grumpy, like, Ugh, you know, so that wasn't my best moment. I, I wouldn't necessarily want that videoed. However, if my life was a reality TV show and you really got an honest look at my life, I feel pretty confident that you would think, okay, she practices what she preaches. They wouldn't be able to pull out any dirt on you. Not really. They have to like create it. (laughs) Yeah, you know they would. They yeah they would have to create it. Yeah, there's well there's always my external relationships are, are sometimes interesting. You know when you start to set boundaries and become a new version of yourself, and people have seen you as this people pleaser. Right. And that can be really difficult. It's like, oh, we used to Sarah would just always do what I wanted her to. Or I could just tell Sarah what to do and she'd be okay with it. And what now about it's like getting divorced. I mean, are you able to talk about that and, yes, and, and how, you know, you were shunned for doing it? Because I think a lot of women feel that. I told you about the people pleasing and the and the signing off on permission slips. And I was trying to decide whether or not I was going to get a divorce, right? So my dad's a pastor. I was married to my student pastor's brother, okay? Large church. You can imagine what I call the spaghetti of that, right? It's tangled. It's woven. It's, it's going to be a mess, right? And obviously, you know, the, the teachings I learn about God hates divorce and then my kids are young and am I going to go to hell and all this other kind of stuff. Well, I went to a biblical counselor and one biblical counselor said within the first 15 minutes of biblical counseling that if I wasn't willing to forgive and forget that there's a Bible verse that says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. So if you're not willing to forgive and forget in the first 15 minutes of the first counseling session and everything that's happened in the past, we're done with, didn't count then you really need to look and see whether or not you're a real Christian. Okay. Whoa. So <laughs> the problem I is chills everywhere, even from what you just said. It was terrible. And I think this counselor had talked to a lot of people who weren't familiar with the Bible, but I'm an avid reader and I have a fabulous memory. Right. So I was like, that's not all the Bible says, you know, here's some other verses that are really, you know, countering, but then I got labeled as contentious. And he said, you're not arguing with me. You're arguing with God. So that didn't go that well. And he said, if I was going to get a divorce, that I was personally killing Jesus and whipping him with a cat of nine tails. And I needed to look in the mirror and take full responsibility for killing Jesus. You talk about that's pretty harsh. (laughs) I mean, I laugh about it. That's a lot of responsibility right there. Insanity. I mean, it's just crazy talk, but yeah, I've um, never heard that. Wow. It is terrible. And it was basically trying to pigeonhole me into staying married. And because of all that confusion and all that chaos, and I actually blacked out while I was driving. Right. Because I didn't realize at the time that indecision was a decision. And so my body was so stressed. My hair was falling out. I was gaining weight, losing weight. I ended up not being able to digest my food. I was super depressed. I just felt like I was going nuts. Like when, when you have that kind of fight, you know, I mean, just darkness, you know, just darkness, like hanging onto your body, trying to prevent you from moving forward. It was incredibly difficult and just shut my body down. It's paralyzing. Uh, yeah, I was with Charlotte, North Carolina, just driving the car. And all of a sudden I wasn't driving the car and my friend had to grab the, grab the wheel. And that was really my wake up call. Right. And I was like, 
okay, well, I got to stop trying to get all these people to sign off on my permission slips and learn to sign off on my own permission slip and really learn a new concept for making decisions to actually get me forward. Okay. I have a question from the audience that kind of goes along with this. It's somebody who hasn't yet fully gotten mm -hmm. through it, which mm -hmm. I'm sure a lot of women reach out to you at that stage. It was amazing thing. what happened to my body as you even told me that. I mean, like the like the impact on my body, like it's like, you know, in the Grinch, when your heart grows like six sizes, like when I hear that and hear people in that state, it's like my heart goes six, six sizes too big or whatever. So what is her question? I would love. To and know. I'm sure you get this often. I mean, I'm oh, sure these day. are the women who reach out to you, but she mm -hmm. wants to know, like, how can you heal? How mm -hmm. can you move from being a victim to thriving? So one of the things that saved me in my own life, because I talked about what chaos my, was happening in my brain. And I started to turn my problems from spaghetti to waffles, okay? So spaghetti thinking is, oh no, where am I gonna live? I'm not gonna have child support. What am I gonna do? My kids are so little. I was actually working for the church at the time, so I knew I was gonna have to quit my job. People are gonna be mad at me. What if my dad gets fired for this? What are people gonna think of me? Uh, are my children gonna be cast out? You know, and that's what I call spaghetti thinking, right? And that's what our brains do, but you could see how we get exhausted and stuck, right? And so you wanna take each one of those noodles and put them in like an individual waffle square, okay? So I'm gonna take one noodle, where am I going to live? That is one problem to solve. What am I gonna tell people about the reason I decided to get a divorce? That's another problem to solve. How will I hire a divorce lawyer? That's another problem to solve, right? And to start thinking in boxes rather than raveled up together. That is one of the biggest pieces of advice I have. And if you journal or brain dump, you can start to like circle the different individual problems you see and then take action on those rather than seeing them all together. That's good. So you started doing that and you have done like a tremendous amount of personal development. That's very true. I mean, I saw that you did Brendan Burchard's program, that you've studied Tony Robbins principles. What did that do for you? One of the things with Tony Robbins Platinum Mindset Coaches, there's a lady named Jane Jewell, who I remember she coached like the richest person in the world or something, you know, I mean, just very high level coach. And she said, things will always bother you. Okay. What you want is for something that used to bother you for six weeks to take it down to six days, to take it down to 60 minutes, to take it down to six minutes, to take it down to one minute, mm. right? So the difference in someone, your boss bothering you or sending you an angry email or someone else, your mother-in-law's opinion of you, right? There's a huge difference in 60 days and six minutes. And I loved that principle from Tony Robbins. And there's also something that we talked about, 50 stacks, okay? So this is my superfood for feeling empowered, that that person had a question about moving forward, right? So this is my superfood for feeling empowered. And I would listen to James Brown, I feel good, da na 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 and I knew I would. Okay, so it's like a two or three minute song. And I would create these lists of things I had been brave in, or ways I was confident, or things I had accomplished, even if it was something in third grade or fourth grade, you know, you could say, I got up, I fell down at the field day and I got up and finished the race, right? It doesn't matter what it is. It's retraining your brain to trust itself and retraining your brain to see yourself as powerful. Those pattern interrupts are so powerful. 
Yeah, I, I think those. And a lot of what I've done in high performance coaching training has been learning how to stress reset. So a lot of us, without knowing it, are stress stacking. Okay. So you're running through school and your kids can't find their water bottle and they're stressed out. And then your first meeting is late. And then your dog ran out of food and you feel guilty. Then you were late going to lunch. Then your husband asks you if you had set out the beef to thaw for dinner. Then you, you know, I mean, all this. So it's like stress stacking throughout the day. And when you think about in the past, like our ancestors, we're all sitting by the fire, we're all, you know, cooking up things, and there's a bear coming out of the woods, okay? We don't go, cool, there's a bear. We don't go, oh, bears are, it's so unfair that the world has bears. That's ridiculous that the world has bears. God shouldn't have made bears. Or maybe this bear is sending me a message that I'm supposed to do bear skin. I mean, I don't know what it is, you know, but we, we run, right? Like there's danger and our body runs, and when that used to happen, we signaled to our brains that we completed the stress cycle. But let's say our kids are fighting in the morning on the way to school. There's no completion of that stress cycle. So we stack it and take it with us to the next thing. And then by the end of the day, we're in decision-making fatigue, we're burned out, we're frustrated, and we often take out that stress on the wrong person. Yeah, definitely. Right? So those are two of my, my personal development hacks that uh, I, I talk to people a lot about. And you can even, if you have a negative email from someone, you have someone who said something ugly to you in the grocery store or whatever, you can literally dust off your body, right? Just dust off your body. Take that or, you know, Taylor Swift, shake it off, shake it off, right? Some signal, some physical action in your body. We, we cannot outsmart our nervous systems. I tried to outsmart my nervous system and not make a decision and my body shut down while driving. You know, I see people out, try to outsmart their nervous system by not sleeping, outsmart their nervous system by not dealing with grief, outsmart their nervous system by being in a toxic relationship and pretending it isn't toxic. I'll just not think about it. I'll think about it later. Oh, don't worry about that, right? I mean, all these things that it's just like stress, stack, stress, stack, stress, stack. And then we blow up, we reach the end of our rope, we get decision-making fatigue. We have that one crucial business decision that we needed to make. We blew it because we were exhausted. You know, we just, there's so many tips and tools and tricks that really can get us back into the healthiest, earliest versions of like how our bodies are just made. Do you have any like advice to give as far as handling your immediate family diplomatically? Has there been anything that has worked well or that you say that can help people navigate that piece? Because I feel like that has to be really hard. To create a healthy family, my biggest advice is taking turns at the top of the pyramid. If it is my daughter's birthday, she gets to pick where we eat. She's at the top of the pyramid. If my son just finished a tennis tournament and won, he's at the top of the pyramid. If I have a major work deadline, I'm at the top of the pyramid. If my husband isn't feeling well and he just needs some extra quiet in the house, he can be at the top of the pyramid. And so in a healthy functioning environment, everyone is taking turns, right? And Rena, I'll tell you the story about, I was at a Mother's Day tournament for baseball. I was gonna have my mother over the next day. I was cooking. I was at the ball field the night before Mother's Day until 11 o'clock at night. Now my son had like won this tournament that's wonderful. That's great, right? But I remember thinking that it feels like there's something really wrong that like for Mother's Day, they plan a tournament until 11 p.m. 
the night before Mother's Day. It's like the one day that's supposed to be about me and it's still about me making sacrifices for the kids. And I hope that doesn't make me sound like a bad mother because I was talking to another mother about it and I said, do you think it's weird? And she said, oh, I don't mind at all. I love my son. I don't have to, you know, I don't have to put myself first. Mother's Day can just be a regular day because it's not about me. It's about him. And I thought, please do not let my daughter date your son, right? Because when we are so selfless as mothers and we say, oh, I'm never having a turn at the top of the pyramid. My needs, wants, desires, whatever are never important. We're either teaching our kids to be selfish because they don't know what it's like for it not to be their turn, or we are telling them that they expire at some point. I'll say, okay, so you have a daughter and it's all about her and everything's about her. And so, is that right? Yeah, it's me. I'm being a good mom. I'm being a good mom. And I'll say, so at what point does she expire? Because if she becomes a mom, I'm assuming you think she's going to no longer have needs, wants, desires, interests, hobbies, need rest. Need God, exercise. If you've listened to this show, you know uh, that never ends. <laughs> right? <laughs> But, you know, I mean, no expiration here. Yeah. Even if they leave your house, they're going to be calling for the rest of their damn life. And hopefully taking care of you when you need it. Better call daddy. (laughs) That's exactly it. You know, but when you think about like a healthy dynamic, if a kid learns, they're always at the top of the pyramid, right? That can be a really difficult thing to know how to navigate a marriage because you have to take turns. Right. And I think that you've even also said that when you were in the unhealthy relationship, you were never at the top of the pyramid. Absolutely. It was never my turn. And I kept thinking I could be so selfless that eventually it would be my turn. Someone else would give me permission. Okay, Sarah, you've earned your way up the ladder, right? So now it's your turn. Now it can be about you. Now what you want and desire and your feelings and your emotions and your dreams can be important. And it never happened. Okay, so now I have a really hard question for you. Mm -hmm. Did that show up in other areas of your life? Yes, so many areas. And just as I had friends, as my lowest standard kept raising and still continues to raise, right? I am relentlessly committed to surrounding myself with people who play by the same set of rules. Sometimes it's your turn. Sometimes it's my turn. When I have friends, sometimes it gets to be about their bad day. Sometimes it gets to be about my bad day. Sometimes my husband rubs my neck. Sometimes I rub his neck. We're just taking turns, people. Like, that's all it is. Healthy relationships take turns. I cannot right? imagine being in a relationship where you never get a freaking turn. It truly makes you feel crazy, right? It's so exhausting. It's so tiring. And it's so confusing because well, it's what I call smart girl syndrome. I talk about it in my first book, Becoming Toxic Person Proof. And smart girl syndrome is like, think about math. Did you like math in high school? I, did. I didn't figure you were like, you did I like did, math? I did. Oh, okay. Well, let's pretend. What, okay. So say you need to work on your English writing paper. Okay. And so if things aren't going well. What do you do? You stay after school, you get a tutor, you study a little more, you work a little harder, right? Now let's say you want to make a podcast. Okay. So it maybe you, you probably have come along. I know that you've come a long way since your first episode, right? So the very first thing you do, it's like, it's not amazing as soon as you start, right? So you, okay, I'm going to tweak this. I'm going to work a little harder on this. I'm going to change this, right? So that's like being a smart girl, right? That's a wonderful, wonderful quality until 
you're in a relationship with someone who wants you to do all the work of the relationship, right? So then you're like, okay, things aren't working. I'm going to work harder. And they're like, awesome. And then you're like, oh, I made them mad. I, I shouldn't have made them mad. I'm going to work harder to be nicer. I'm going to work harder to be more forgiving. I'm going to work harder to need less. I'm going to work harder to make myself small so I don't take them off. Right. And all those things. Right. But when you talk about codependency, it's almost this idea of like, I can't live without you. I can't function without you. I, you know, I can't be alone. That is not sometimes that is true, but it gets labeled and it isn't always true. Sometimes it's the smart girl syndrome, which says I can't give up. I can't fail. If something isn't working, I'm just going to work harder or it's my fault and I need to work harder. If, if I can be the change, I need to be in the world and I need, you know, my partner's telling me I need to change. I feel good about changing. So I'll just change and then we won't fight. And then they'll like me and then things will be going well. Right. And it, it's just very sad dynamic because one person's doing all the work and one person's getting all the benefit. How long were you in that situation? 12 years. <laughs> I think, yeah, I'm trying to think. People say, oh yeah, you know, have you had a toxic relationship? And I'm like, hey, you think it's just one. That's not true, right? You know, uh, whether it be guys in high school or friendships or professional relationships at some point. And I was just naive, right? I just thought everybody was nice. And I just needed to be nice and then everybody would be nice back. It didn't go that well. It's a tough world. It's a tough reality. It didn't go that well, right? Uh, it didn't go that well. So I am really curious too the differences between the men and women that have talked mm -hmm. to you about this subject. Mm -hmm. Have you noticed any differences between the men and women that you've spoken to about it? Yes. So they can typically be manipulated in different ways. So often women will get manipulated by like feeling the need to save like, oh, you know, they were hurt when they were younger or no one's ever loved them well, that type of thing. And so they, they try to like, you know, if I love them through their pain, they'll love me forever. And guys tend to be very protective you know, so it's not really saving them necessarily. It's more of that protective energy of like, well, you know, her last guy was this, so I'm going to protect her and I'm going to stand by her. And typically toxic females will play the victim, though it can flip. And then toxic guys, they're more what I call the hero, which is, you know, you'd be really happy if you just did everything I said you should do. Right. So it's that very like assertive energy. And a lot of times the women will, oh, I need help. I need you to save me. But then both of them flip. Right. But it's kind of like their calling card. You know what I'm saying? It's like the calling card is I need you to save me. Or I've had this terrible past, but then it, it can flip into some different ways. But I've absolutely seen it both. Some of the best husbands I know had very toxic and you, typically addiction issues. I'm not saying everyone who struggles with addiction is toxic. Please, please, please hear that. But sometimes it does go together, right? As all kinds of things go together, right? And so you see these men and they had these addiction in both women and men, but I know some personally, and they were just so good to their first wives and just trying to help her out of that addiction and then help her. And then they had kids and they were having to watch the kids full time because, you know, she was, and then it ended up dying of drug overdoses and things. And it's terribly sad. And, you know, to say there's no good guys out there, when I see these men showing up over and over and over for females that have addiction issues, 
there are good guys out there. And then I see such wonderful, kind women who have men who struggle with addiction issues. Oh, and then they just, they think, oh, I just need to love them better. And it'll all work out. And our movies and our songs and our stories often say that things will work out if you just wait till you get to the end of the hour and a half. Interesting. Wow. There's a lot there. Do you think, I mean, from what you've seen that people can work through it? I mean, obviously your goal is not divorce. No. And I say that all the time. I'm like, man, I don't get a bonus sticker if you get a divorce. Like there's no report card that says, you know, you should get a divorce. In my new book, the problem solved simple habits for complex decisions. I talk about a language that me and my husband use and I'll say, okay, the problem, if you're in spaghetti thinking, let's say one partner feels like they're doing more of the childcare than the other partner, super common problem, right? And so you get in spaghetti thinking, which is, this isn't fair that I'm always having the one to change my work schedule. And maybe if I'd been a doctor instead of a dentist, then my spouse would respect me. And, you know, it's not fair that school lets out at this time and it should let out this time, right? That's spaghetti thinking. You see how ineffective it is. And also please pay attention because that's usually how people are talking. When you start now that I've pointed it out, when you start seeing people talking, you go, oh, this is spaghetti thinking, right? And if you get really clear on what problem you're trying to solve, such as I need the kid to get from school to my house at 3.30 on Thursday. There's a, a gazillion creative solutions. You could carpool with a friend. You could assign every other Thursday with your spouse. You could pay for after-school childcare. You could get a nanny to pick them up. You could sign them up for art classes after school so that they, I mean, there's just so many creative solutions. If you can get clear and waffle down the problem you're trying to solve. I heard you say that. And I was actually thinking a lot about that today. What problem are you trying to solve? Like that really even applies to entrepreneurship so much because entrepreneurship too is a lot of spaghetti thinking. Well, absolutely. And I interviewed a, on my podcast, Toxic Person Proof, I interviewed someone who talks about messaging. So she works with online entrepreneurs about messaging. And if you are ambiguous in who you work with or what problem you solve for a client, you're not going to make as much money as if you're clear, right? It's fascinating to me in all our conversations around self-help and self-care. We are not talking about clarity within that process. We're talking about pedicures. We're talking about bubble baths. We're talking about therapy sessions. We're talking about like, you know, a new outfit, a new purse or what a massage, right? What about your brain having boundaries? What about your brain having those little waffle squares? So you're not circling in that spaghetti thinking all the time. Or what about you help learning the process to help other people get unstuck so that your employees are not driving you crazy with complaining or your kids aren't driving you crazy with uncertainty or your spouse and you aren't fighting because no one's really sure about what problem you're trying to solve. Have you put processes in place? Oh, yeah. So that's the language my husband and I will say like, okay, the problem I'm trying to solve is when I'm making dinner and you go outside and you talk to the neighbor for 20 minutes while I'm making dinner and then come in when dinner's already ready, it makes me feel like you're more interested in catching up with him in the day rather than me, right? Or it makes me feel alone because I'm trying to do kids homework and make dinner at the same time. Okay. So that's really great point. Like, have you become a better communicator now in your relationship where you really feel like you can express to your spouse how you're feeling in your relationship? Absolutely. I can't believe you went and talked to the neighbor again instead of helping me with dinner. 
versus, hey, the problem I'm trying to solve is I really want to have a peaceful dinner with you. And when you're gone talking to the neighbor and I'm doing everything by myself, I'm already stressed out by the time it's time to eat. Right. People are like, OK, you're in problem solving mode. You're trying to improve things. You're trying to. It just comes across so much nicer and clearer and better. And, and even with your kids. Right. Okay, the problem I'm trying to solve is I feel like it's hard on our, our relationship and I'm always having to nag you to do your homework. I know that your homework is your responsibility. It's not my responsibility. And the problem I'm trying to solve is to find good ways to remind you to do your homework without us it turning into a fight. I love that. That's really good. Right. And kids are like, hmm. you know, and you can even say to your kid, like, do you have any suggestions for creative solutions to that? Well, maybe you can make a sticky note and put it on my door. So when I get in, I remind you to do my homework or something. And that way the sticky note becomes the enemy. <laughs> not you <laughs> or you know the stressful dinner becomes the enemy not you talking to the neighbor and me feeling alone and it just really creates an energy and culture of problem solving I like the sticky note idea actually today my kids started school and you know I have one in the threes and the teacher was like I just wanted to let you know that you can write little things that your three-year-old does throughout the week that's like a mitzvah, like a good deed so that we can read it to the class. I was like, oh, I'm back in like mitzvah note land. You know, I was like, these are the best years. Like yeah, that is because I know all your kids are three, right? So I mean, that is a, that is a really, that's a really It's a special. sweet thing. They like put the little good deeds throughout the week that all the kids do and they like read their name and read the little, you know, good thing they did in the world. I was like, God, we all need mitzvah notes. So you were asking about the processes and some yes. of that. So with my own kids, ever since they were little, they say, I am, I'll say kind of not in place of our nightly prayers, but if, if you do nightly prayers or nightly rituals with your kids, think about it within terms of that. And there was a great book called the thinking person's guide to joy. And it said the absolute best thing you can do to hack into happiness is to think about the best parts of your day before you go to bed. That's beautiful. I love that. So my kids lay down. I say, what are the three best parts of your day? And they always say right now, which includes that relationship with you, which is really sweet. And then they say two other things, which gives you insight into what they value and whatnot. It gets them thinking in terms of positive thoughts before bed. And then they say, my kids say, I am strong. I am brave. I'm a critical thinker. I am my mommy's girl and I can do hard things, right? And it's that whole mentality of, I am a critical thinker. I am strong. I am brave. I can face hard things. I can make hard decisions. And we just add in my, I'm a mommy's girl or boy, you know, do it, do it for fun. But my kids have been through a lot and they are really very confident. Other people make that comment, you know, they're high performers. They're not good at everything, but the, their skill set, they're building a real skill set for themselves. No one's good at everything, right? So they, they're building this skill set, whether it be one tends to be more athletic, one tends to be more academic, but they're building success for themselves. And I think part of it has to do with those affirmations. I, I'm really grateful I did that. Yeah, that's a really good tip. I love affirmations and mantras. I think that those are good to have. When you were going through the really difficult transition in your hardest time with your kids, do you mm -hmm. have any advice there? Yes. Get kids to learn to trust themselves. I want in that book about the gift of fear, right? I want when Ted Bundy comes towards my kids for them to be so at practice, recognizing their body signals, right? Something feels weird. Something feels off. 
and to trust that, not to do what most people do. And think about, Rena, like, oh, I really need to go to the bathroom. Okay, I'm going to talk myself out of it and try to ignore that. Right? Just hold it. Right, we do that all the time. You know, whatever it is, and it's like, okay, so what if it's? I always tell my kids, I'm like, you don't want to hold that. <laughs> like, it's not healthy to hold that. Right, right, okay. So in that conversation, it's not healthy to hold that. Like, let's say you have fear signals, or you feel like someone's lying to you, or manipulating you, or, or even earlier than that, something just feels off. Something feels weird. I don't know. Something, something doesn't feel right about that. I mean, what a nightmare, like this parent, this, this parent, that, that's just so hurtful and hard on kids. Right. But just teach them what a healthy person looks like. Healthy people take turns. Healthy people are emotionally responsible for their own self. So they don't throw their anger on others. I love that. That's really good. And, And what do your eyes see and what do your ears hear? And your goal is to teach them This is what healthy people look like, not to talk them into the other parent being a bad person, right? That will blow up in your face. It's terribly damaging to children. No therapist or whoever is going to say to do that, right? But what I see is a lot of people, maybe there's a toxic grandparent or toxic parent or something, and they get so nervous about pointing their child like that that person may be toxic, that they don't teach them anything about toxic people. And that really leaves your child open to vulnerable relationships and to get themselves in messes. They don't trust their own intuition. So really teaching them, what do your eyes see? What do your ears hear? What does your body feel like? Do they feel, does your body feel safe and relaxed around that person? Or does your body feel nervous and on edge? And I mean, golly, what a gift we can give our kids if we just teach them to believe their own body signals. Yeah, I think that is a really good piece of advice. And we do need to study people who are successful and who have healthy habits and, and positive relationships. I mean, I need to put time on my calendar for that. (laughs) (laughs) I am kind of obsessed with it. So I do not need to put time on my calendar. It is already there all the time. I assure you, but I'm obsessed with it. Right. I'm obsessed with people and conversations and in different ways to say things like, okay, let's just think about taking turns right? Healthy relationships take turns. That's very easy to understand if you're five years old or 50 years old. If you're in a relationship where it's never your turn, something's wrong. A seven-year-old can understand that with a a selfish friend. You know, it's truly beautiful, like how babies get that even. I mean, my three-year-old was coloring a star that was going to get put on the wall yesterday for like orientation. And then there was another baby a little bit younger than him sitting next to him that didn't have any crayons and he gave the other baby a crayon because he had like five or six of them he grabbed a whole handful and then mm-hmm. the baby is like staring at him that she probably wants another color and he's like nothing was said the parents didn't even have to say anything it was just the baby looking at my baby and smiling and kind of like looking at what he was doing and he totally got it so that type of example is actually because sometimes people say well do you think they can change right? So in this relationship, they've been with someone five months, five years, 10 years, it does 50 years, it doesn't matter, right? And they'll say, Sarah, do you think they can change? And I say, well, okay, when do people learn to take turns? When are people told that they need to take turns? And they say two, three, four, right? And I said, okay, so this person is 44, 54, 64, and they don't feel like they need to take turns. They feel okay with it always being their turn. You tell me how likely that is to change. Yeah. When is change even still possible? Like, I feel like once you've got a 14 year old, their personality is totally like 
they're going to do what they want to do. <laughs> they say it's like even earlier than that. There's some like 30 and 50 years long studies that have studied personality types and like kindergarten teachers, like making notes about kids and then interviewing people 30 years later and how dead on the kindergarten teachers were. And again, I, this is like personalities. I'm not saying people can't ever study yours. Yes. Yes. Oh, I'm fascinated by conversation right like how much is nature how much is nurture but yeah. i mean there's a lot of studies around personalities being formed just crazy early i personally believe that anyone can change as long as they want to i also believe most people don't want to <laughs> that is that's the real answer you know and really looking at patterns of behavior rather than promises right patterns mean nothing promises mean a whole lot what have you learned from your parents? From my parents, my mom was the whole messaging around don't talk to strangers. My mom was like, no, you should always talk to strangers, right? So being a pastor's kid, I was always expected to be around new people. I was in awkward situations. I would go to a funeral every Tuesday or whatever. Um, and it was an odd way to grow up. But, you know, even doing podcasting and, and doing interviews and stuff, it's like, oh, I'm just supposed to talk to people and connect with them and listen well and communicate. Like, what do you mean? Like, it's just, uh, it was such a part of my normal life, right? And being able to have those conversations with people of all ages and all beliefs and all situations, even really difficult situations like a funeral. And that's one of the best things I've learned from my parents is just that the art of the conversation, right? And asking really good questions and being sincerely interested in who people are. And my grandmother was always someone who, if you made a billion dollars that year or $5 that year, she would treat you exactly the same, right? She was just interested in people. And I hope that is what I have gotten from her. And I hope that is who I continue to be. Oh, that's sweet. So you had a special relationship with your grandma? Yeah, she, it was, I remember, I'll never forget saying, you know, you had a hard life. And she said, what are you talking about? I haven't had a hard life. And I was like, well, I was thinking in my head, I was like, you didn't graduate from high school and then had a husband who actually died of like a, the government was doing some testing. And so he died of lung cancer. She actually got paid out way later from a huge lawsuit. She didn't initiate the lawsuit like other people did. My grandfather died of lung cancer and left her with three kids. One had diabetes and she was just so poor. You know, back then it was kind of normal to not graduate high school. And she had a husband with a good job, but then he died of lung cancer at like 26 years old or something, you know? And then she ended up burying her daughter that had diabetes. And then she ended up burying several other people, you know? And I remember like, I remember saying her saying, yeah, I mean, I haven't had a hard life. What are you talking about? And I was like, oh, like how did I get to that type of piece? And uh, I will never forget that moment. It was impressive. Wow. That is remarkable. And and when you're having a really hard time, you can think about that, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What our grandparents endured and then just kept marching through is truly remarkable. What about any yeah. lessons from your dad? We got to, we got to get some daddy quotes in so, here. Um, yes. My, my daddy lessons. He's just, well, he's got his doctorate and he is just so well read and he was really the cycle breaker right so my his mo mom you know his dad died he grew up just so poor you know they had she my grandmother drove a school bus they he had holes in his shoes and i ran into someone who knew him in high school and he said 
your dad, he was always during study hall. He was the only one not goofing off. He'd sit there and do all his homework and all his stuff, you know, and it wasn't because his parents were making him, but he valued education, right? And so he went on to get his doctorate and was just really that the breaker of that cycle of poverty and just from loving to learn. Did you look up to him? Yeah, yeah. And and I love to learn as well. It's it's like, oh, quoting this book and quoting this book. And it's it's and my son loves books like that. It's just fun to get to see the world through through the pages of all these amazing authors. Have you talked about what legacy is in your family or like what your purpose is in being here? Yeah, I know my legacy is to be able to break down really complicated subjects into really distinct language patterns, such as stress stacking. I made that up, right? So, I mean, you didn't hear about that 10 years ago or two years ago or 10 days ago, right? But as soon as I said it, you're like, oh, okay, stress stacking, that makes sense, right? And so it's a two second, five second, 10 second concept that I hope will have impact in your life, right? And it's like, oh, I don't wanna be a stress stacker. I got to complete some of those stress cycles and shake it off and and dust myself off. And there's a bear coming out of the woods. I'm going to do 10 jumping jacks so I don't carry that stress into my next activity. And so I love taking really complex subjects or spaghetti thinking, right? Okay, you want to take it from spaghetti to waffles. These are concepts that have saved my life. I love too that you eat the spaghetti in your social media posts. I actually do. So this weekend, my husband made spaghetti on Friday and waffles on Saturday. And I was like, oh my gosh, we really do eat this stuff all the time. You know, it's a, it's a lot of carbs. I'm like, so, do you really swallow them? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I did. That's I was like, you don't really eat that. I was like, oh, but I do. And I did have pie right before this call. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I love the visual concepts. And I remember what spaghetti thinking felt like and just the despair of it, you know, and the confusion and despair. And what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And just learning to take it really one bite at a time. Right. When you're even saying that, I'm like, what about the women who are in despair now? What about the women that are in the thick of it? Yes. So if you are in the thick of it, one of the best things I can give you right now, we get the gift. Our brains do this automatic gift of if I change, this will happen bad. This will happen bad. This will happen bad. This this will happen bad. Right. So I want you to do is train your brain to think about if things don't change. Right. Oh, gosh. What if. I'll use my nutrition. I'm, I'm not a nutrition coach and I have no business doing it. But let's say I ate like I ate today for dinner every day. And it was like, oh, I have pie and ice cream every night. What if I didn't change that? I had pie and ice cream every night, pie and ice cream every night. I just told you my grandmother had a child die of diabetes. My grandmother had diabetes. I have no grandfather on the other side had diabetes. I have no business eating pie and ice cream every night. Right. And that's a silly example. But it's like, OK, say you're always people pleasing. You never have boundaries. You always are never at the top of the pyramid. What happens if that never changes? What does life look like? Are you always exhausted? Are you always fighting with people? Are you always passive aggressive because you don't know how to make your real needs met? So you just make these passive aggressive comments. Like what happens if things don't change? And we really have to do an extra loop and an extra bit of work because our brains automatically go, I can't change because, ah," right? So we want our brains to go, oh my gosh, if I don't change, this will stay the same and this will stay the same and this will stay the same. And that can really, really help you learn to make a decision about whether or not you want to do this the rest of your life. I love that. And if people want to hear more tips and more amazing interviews, they can listen to your podcast, 
buy your book and you have a coaching program. So let's talk about all of that. Oh, and you got to ask my daddy something after that. I will. Okay. So my uh, newest book, which they can get this like in the next month for the 99 cent pre-sale. So the pre-order. So it's problem solved, simple habits for complex decisions. I break down getting clear on what problem we're trying to solve, uh, spaghetti to waffle thinking, both for yourself. And then each chapter has influencing yourself and influencing others. One of the most interesting pieces of feedback I've gotten is people who have employees who are stuck in spaghetti thinking, right? And they're so frustrated because they're like, okay, I want to protect their mental well-being, but I also need to get them into productivity, right? Like there also need things need to be happening. So how do I, as a boss, like balance that uh, and a manager and care about their mental health, but also, you know, their shareholders that expect to be paid and, and that's like, that sort of thing, right? And deadlines we have to meet. So incredible information there. And if you are in a toxic relationship or have been in a toxic relationship, definitely check out my podcast, Toxic Person Proof, and my book, Becoming Toxic Person Proof. Love it. Okay. Is there anything that you'd like to ask my dad? I would like to ask him, ooh, I'll go with what his earliest memory is. That's a good one. Yeah. So I've been really studying into how our bodies have hold memories, like our bodies store memories. And, you know, like I remember me with my grandfather and I said, oh, I sing high because I'm a girl and low because my voice is low, which my voice is not low. I don't know why I would have said that, but it's just this early memory I have. It's like a gas station. And he was a singer and talking about that. And, you know, I've been doing music my whole life. So I just think it can be really interesting what your earliest memory is. What else is interesting too, is that your earliest memory involves a direction that you took. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because that was what, that was what was important to me, right? And personalities being consistent, you know, this week I was very stressed out and I had a hard week and I sat at the piano and that was my meditation, right? And I just played and I played and that was my, that was my healing space. And then my earliest memory is talking about singing, right? Like it's a consistent pattern because that's who I am, right? And I want to become more of who I am because if I'm trying to be someone else, it's not going to work. I love that. And all of the personal development that you've done has brought you back to really knowing that. Absolutely. And any personal development work that's trying to talk you out of yourself is concerning, right? You want to think about if there's a gold statue underneath you and kind of some dirt and muck on it from bad relationships or trauma or sadness, right? We just want to clean off that dirt and get to the gold underneath, not try to be someone we're not. And you've done that too, because you're now in a healthy relationship, which yes. I think is also encouraging to the audience. Oh my gosh. It's so much better. It's so much better. And it's peaceful and it's nice and it's not boring. You know, it's adventurous, but it's, we went on a date before this and like dinner, it's like, um, let's get some dessert. I'm craving pie. He's like, what time do you need to be back? I was like, we can make it. Let's go get some pie. Right. And it's just silly and fun and light and and then sometimes we do the laundry and that's okay too, right? But it's just that give and take and just mutually caring about people. But doing the self-awareness work of getting to that gold underneath you rather than expecting my husband to do all the dirt removal. Like that is so unkind. If I say, you know, I don't really love myself, so I need you to love me so I can be okay. That's just so unfair to your partner. So if you can be your best self and bring your best self into the relationship. It's one of the kindest things you can do for 
the future, the world, your children, your boss, yourself. I mean, just everybody. Yeah, that's really good advice. I love that message. Thank you. I mean, everybody needs that, whether they're in a toxic relationship or not, mm-hmm. right? If you bring your best self, then others will bring their best self too. And you shouldn't depend on others to, to make you feel that way. Well, I remember when we first started dating, my husband said, or he was my boyfriend then, and he said something about making me happy. And I said, what? It's not your job to make me happy. What are you talking about? That's my job. And he was like, huh? You know, and I, he could tell, like, I just like, he'd done 10 years of dating and he's quite a catch, you know, he's tall, dark, handsome, great job. What a good personality, whatever. He likes to cook for me. Yes, this is my real life. Um, and, <laughs> you know, but, you know, I, he had dated for 10 years. And when I said like, what? It's not your job to make me happy. It's my responsibility to make me happy. He's like, whoa. I feel like a lot of guys want to do that though. Absolutely. When I take responsibility, then if I'm my, if I'm building my own cake, he can put the icing on, right? Yes. But if my cake is crumbling and there's no flour and there's no eggs and it's falling apart and he's trying to be nice and put icing, but then the cake keeps falling apart, you've got a problem, right? I'm responsible for my own cake. And you know, this morning, hey, you want to go on a date tonight? We did this little burger place outside and it was beautiful weather. And it's just, he wants to do nice things for me. And I was like, I got a crick in my neck. Will you rub my neck? Okay then can I buy you ice cream and pie? I mean, guys, this is like actually my life tonight, right? And I'm responsible for my own emotional well-being. And then we bring, we just bring kindness to each other because we're not trying to grab healing and identity from each other. I'm happy for you. It's hard to get there for, I think people that are in the thick of it, I think this can be encouraging and also (laughs) potentially like, you know, they need to do the waffle stacking thing, like, or the... (laughs) Yeah. And and getting clear on what problem they're trying to solve, right? To create that healing because one of the most heartbreaking things I see is people working really really hard to solve the wrong problem. So they've spent this money, they're, you know, they've done this work, they've done this work, you know, people all say, you know, what have you done to heal from a toxic relationship? And they say, I'm I go hiking. And I said, that's great. Can you give me some statistics around that hikers are less likely to end up in a toxic relationship? And they start laughing. And I say, I love that you hike. But what problem are you trying to solve? Is it to be a better hiker? Is it to get exercise? Is it to connect with nature? Is it to zen out in your mind? Like these are wonderful things. Is it to set boundaries? Is it to stop people pleasing? Hiking will not fix these things. It's not supposed to fix these things, right? So we just want to get clear on what problem we're trying to solve. So we're not spinning our wheels for years and years. Yeah. And I feel like people do because it's a really hard decision to get out. Mm -hmm. It's better on the other side. I'm glad to hear that. I want to ask one more question now that we're like talking. I thought about the television show that you got to be a part of. What happened with that? Your best self. So I'm still in contract negotiation and all that kind of stuff. I actually, he's supposed to call me, I think today (laughs) or tomorrow. But yeah, Elizabeth, the idea of your best self TV and with Dr. D and he's a wonderful man, right? And so it's all these experts from all around the world about being your best self, whether it be lifestyle or wellness or exercise or eating or, you know, whatever it is, just kind of up leveling your life. I mean, that is perfect for where you're at right now. I know. And he, it was very fun. So if you guys want to check out my Instagram, Toxic Person Proof, you can see clips from, from my time on the Your Best Self show. The behind the scenes. 
Yes, I did do behind the scenes. And it's so, it's so fun and they're so nice. But he talked about, he said, oh yeah, you know, the Southern girls, Southern hospitality, you probably think us New Yorkers are mean. And I was like, no, I don't. They were very sweet, very sweet. Well, continued success and keep me posted on that. And also let me know when the book drops and send me all those links so I can include them in the show notes. I will. They dropped yesterday for the friends and family sale. So I will get it to you today. I am just so excited. Oh my God. Congratulations. Well, I will get this out in the next couple of weeks and maybe I will do a giveaway. Ooh, that sounds wonderful. That would be amazing. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Sarah Kay, thank you so much for coming on the Better Call Daddy show. And I can't wait to hear what my dad has to say about your question. I can't either. Thank you so much. Have an awesome night. Bye. Now, let's switch it over to Grandpa. Have you ever heard of Stomp and Holler before? I'm not sure. Yeah, at the beginning of the episode, she said she was going to do some Stomp and Holler. I had never even heard of that. Oh, she did make a little noise. She was very enthusiastic, and she's got a lot of life in her, which is just terrific. And again, she brings up in her episode, as others in theirs, is that when you have mentorship, you have people that you look up to people that treat you right, respectful, people that are there to give you a helping hand. That's how you even overcome adversities in your life. When you are able to really confer with people, the respect she has for her grandfather, her father, her mother, her music teacher, she's had uh, people that have surrounded her with love and attention is then able to not only overcome her own adversity, but she also then wants to be able to help other people. I I do like her approach where you want to be able to give everyone a chance to be on the stage or to have their turn where they're on top of the totem pole. As you know, that discussion comes up in our house all the time. Yeah. Wouldn't it be nice to know before you got married to someone how they handle adversity? Well, yeah, I had some ups and downs with your mom before we got married and having those ups and downs probably helps us through our marriage because it it wasn't easy picking during the whole marriage. We've had ups and downs, but by having ups and downs is how you work things out and where you hear each other out and try to give attention to the other person's needs. What came up in this episode also is that people that only think about their needs first and not the other person is where the problem of a relationship breaking down occurs. Don't you think? Yeah, I do think. You know, what was also fascinating with her question is that how far back can you go where you can really remember something? And I gave that some thought. I mean, I remember things when I'm two and three years old, but everything that I remember from two to three or four or five years old was always on something that was disturbing or something that had happened to me. When I was just a couple of years old and I fell down those steps or I tripped on the steps with Rhonda there, I opened up my lip. I told you I had some stitches above my lip. It was bleeding and the neighbor had to come over and help when my mom put something on that uh, bottle of mine, you know, where I, I threw the bottle down and it broke, you know, it was also when I was just a small child or when they were trying to get me to get out of the diaper where they put me in. It was in Newburgh, you know, where they put me out in the field to run around and I didn't like peeing down my leg. And uh, then I started going into the toilet. <laughs> What's ironic is that the only things I remember was things that happened to me that weren't necessarily very pleasant. And even at a very young age, isn't it true that if certain children are abused or have a traumatic experience, that some of them never get over it, but they certainly can remember that at any age when something happens to you. 
I thought that that was really an ironic twist, that the things that we can remember sometimes are not necessarily the love and attention that you get, but something that might have happened to you or something that you've seen that's happened to someone else that is really fairly dramatic. I question what we truly remember, though. Well, look, I remember going to kindergarten with the neighbor, Debbie Smith. I was only five years old, and I brought an apple for the teacher. And the teacher says, Miss Crabtree, I think her name was. And she says, oh, I don't like apples. Why don't you go give this to Miss Johnson? And all of a sudden, I was in Miss Johnson's class, and little Debbie Smith was crying that she wasn't in the same nursery class. And they let her come in to the class with me, where we both ended up in Miss Johnson's kindergarten class. Everything that I remember from two or three or five years old is all based on something that unusual occurred for me to remember it. And that's why some people, if they lose something or something happens to them or something devastating happens in their family, it stays with you. It's really something that I didn't really give much thought to, but I think we remember sometimes things that we should get over and forget, and yet we never do. He says something also that's very important is that you can give advice, you can give coaching, but you can't just talk the talk. You have to be able to walk the walk. And if you want people to change their lives and you don't change something that's hurting or devastating in your life, very hard to have credibility unless you're consistent with your actions. I think that comes out very strongly in this episode. I would definitely agree with that. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Hold up. 